Charles Brandt has been here before, sitting in the same chair, in the same Pennsylvania nursing home, opposite the same old man. The old man was once a giant, literally and metaphorically. In his youth, he would walk into a room and if his six foot four stature did not cower people in their seats, then his reputation would. He had been through a war, done things as a soldier that would plague your dreams. His war experience gave him a propensity for violence that would one day become useful in the mob-filled streets of 1950s Detroit. Now, he is nothing but a frail, shrunken man, living in the shadow of his former self, haunted by memories, his back bent over by arthritis, his shoulders weighed down by a conscience developed too late, cancer ravaging his body. He does not have long, Brant clicks the button and the video recorder next to him starts to blink. The old man looks at it. Will he utter the words Brant has been waiting so patiently for all these years? Or will he hesitate and end the interview with his signature? You got enough, Charles. Be satisfied. Don't be probing. It started in 1991. Brant was a young medical malpractice lawyer working out of Delaware when he got an unexpected call. He was asked to take on the old man's case and ended up securing his early release from prison on account of his arthritis. Time to move on. Brandt continued his legal career and the old man enjoyed his early freedom. Then, in 1999, they reconnected and Brandt found himself propelled into the dark hidden corners of the old man's past. Hours he has spent with him hundreds of hours lurking in his fading memory. Now, four years later, it all comes down to this moment. If the old man doesn't actually say it, speak the words, then it was all for nothing because Brandt has spent four years hoping for a full confession. He has watched the old man slowly wither away and wondered if this interview would be their last. If Frank Sheeran does not make a deathbed confession, there is no book, and Brant's reputation is most likely in ruins. Brant needs a confession almost as much as Sheeran needs absolution. The video recorder continues to blink. Brant hopes the battery doesn't die as it has in the past. Sheeran shifts in his chair, thinking. Brant lets him overcome the psychological barriers that prevent a confession. As an experienced interrogator, he knows when someone wants to confess, and that if you push too much or at the wrong time, they will retreat, putting you back months, maybe even years. Sheeran doesn't have years left in him. All roads lead back to July 30th, 1975. What happened on that fateful day? It's a question that has mystified the FBI local law enforcement, and journalists for 46 years. Jimmy Hoffa, the infamous labor leader and the one-time president of the Teamsters, arguably the most powerful labor union in the history of America, disappeared from a restaurant parking lot just outside Detroit. He made a call to his wife that afternoon and hasn't been heard from or seen since. Conspiracy theories, false leads, and aborted investigations have gripped the American imagination ever since. Officially, 
Jimmy Hoffa is still a missing person. The FBI investigation into his disappearance remains active today, and his life and legend has inspired movies, TV shows, and over the years, sudden FBI searches of inconspicuous properties for potential evidence. To this day, everyone wants to know what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Sheeran stammers. He has always stammered. He, he knew right away what it was, he begins. He turned fast, still thinking we were together on this thing, that I was his backup. Brant holds his breath. He took a step to go around me and get to the door. He reached for the knob. And then, finally, Jimmy Hoffa got shot twice at decent range, not too close to the paint splatters back at you. In the back of the head, right behind his ear. My friend didn't suffer. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Frank Sheeran, of the words he spoke as he lay dying. It's about the disappearance of one of the most powerful men in America. It's about the deafening silence that followed and mob infiltration of America's trade unions. It's about an Irishman and his rise in the Cosa Nostra. It's about conspiracies, payoffs, assassination, and presidential pardons. And it's about one man's need to finally come clean before it's too late. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. What happened to Hoffa in that parking lot in July 1975 will become one of the most enduring unsolved crimes in American history. Numerous books are written speculating on his final movements. Countless movies and TV shows are inspired by his mysterious disappearance. Court cases are fought to have FBI investigation files made public. And outrageous theories develop that will grip the general public hungry for answers. The legend of Hoffa enters and exits American popular culture periodically, appearing and disappearing like a ghost that cannot rest. Until 2004, when Charles Brandt releases his infamous book, I Heard You Paint Houses, within which a frail Frank Sheeran offers an explosive deathbed confession that has the potential to solve one of the most notorious crimes ever committed. Jimmy Hoffa learns at an early age how important family is. Born in 1913, as a young child, he grows up in the shadow of World War I. Then his father dies when he is seven years old. 
he learns what it means to be plunged into poverty. At 14, he leaves school to work manual labor jobs to support his mother and siblings. Outraged by the lack of worker rights, he begins organizing against low wages, poor worker conditions, and the lack of job security. His bravery and affability soon win him the respect of fellow workers. And it is not long before he rises in the ranks of the trade union movement that is sweeping across 1930s Great Depression America. At the age of 19, he becomes an organizer for the Teamsters Union in their Detroit office, known as Local 299. The Teamsters were established in 1903 as a trade union for truck drivers. From the beginning, it was a formidable force. Its strike actions could paralyze the movements of goods throughout a city. In the three decades after its creation, the union explodes in both membership and the scope of its power. Jimmy Hoffa has never even worked as a truck driver, but as a labor rights organizer, that doesn't stop him from becoming president of Teamsters Local 299 in 1937. On his way up the Teamster chain of command, his skillful negotiation strategies mean Hoffa accumulates unprecedented power. Truck drivers across the country have better work conditions and more job security. Their loyalty to him is unwavering, and Jimmy Hoffa will fight anyone and everyone to secure them better deals. Jump forward to 1952, and he is selected as Teamster National Vice President. In 1955, Hoffa creates the Central States Pension Fund for union members, and by 1957, he is the general president of the Teamsters. The Central States Pension Fund quickly amasses unparalleled assets. According to Stephen Brill, author of The Teamsters, by 1974, a year before Hoffa disappears, the pension fund is a major financial institution and one of the largest private sources of real estate investment capital in the world. It has more than $1 billion loaned out for commercial real estate ventures. Think the financing of casinos along the Las Vegas Strip, like the Sands, Dunes, Riviera, Tropicana, and Stardust. All with mafia links. The pension fund operates like an unregulated private bank. It is the goose that keeps laying golden eggs and dishes out loans to friends and acquaintances of the fund trustee. Friends and acquaintances of Jimmy Hoffa. And he doesn't always insist they pay their loans back. Over the years, Hoffa acquires the respect and loyalty of Teamster union members across America, with many ready to act on his command. He also acquires unfettered access to huge amounts of wealth. That kind of power can make a man feel indestructible. So powerful that in 1961, the United States Attorney General, Robert F. Kennedy, puts together a team of 20 prosecutors within the Justice Department. He even describes Hoffa as the most powerful man in the country next to the president. The team is hell-bent on bringing Hoffa down and become known as the Get Hoffa Squad. But they are not alone. Hoffa is only valuable to others if he continues to give his acquaintances easy access to the pension fund and lucrative contracts. If on account of his power he starts thinking himself untouchable, 
or becomes too demanding with his shady business associates, then he quickly moves from being an asset to a liability. Everyone wants to be Hoffa's friend as long as he plays ball. And if he stops? Let's just say by July 30th, 1975, there are a lot of guys out there who want to get Hoffa. Hoffa and Frank Sheeran have a lot in common. Like Hoffa, Sheeran is born on the wrong side of the tracks and faces adversities as a child and young man. He has to hustle his way out of poverty in whatever way he can. Born in 1920 and raised Irish Catholic, in a working-class area on the outskirts of Philadelphia, Sheeran is nine years old when the Great Depression hits. At night, his father drives him to remote farmland and throws his young son over the fence. Sheeran scrambles to gather what he can, tomatoes, ears of corn, whatever is in season. It's what they have to do. In August 1941, as Sheeran is approaching his 21st birthday, he enlists in the United States Army. World War II is in full swing. It isn't long before he is on the front line in Italy, France, and Germany. During the war, Sheeran sees 411 combat days. It's an extraordinary number, and his war stories tell of him participating in harrowing violence. Revenge killings, reprisal killings of Nazi concentration camp guards, and summary executions of German prisoners of war. Some might argue his actions constitute war crimes. It is no wonder that when Sheeran returns home from war, he is a changed man. He has gotten used to death and killing. On a quiet night in 1955, Sheeran pulls into a truck stop outside Endicott, New York. His truck is acting up. He is 35 and hauls meat for food fare to make a living. With a wife and growing family at home, he has mouths to feed. As he pops the hood to take a look, a short Italian man approaches. Can I give you a hand, kiddo? He asks. In no time, the Italian man somehow gets his truck started. Sheeran thanks him and jumps back into his truck and hits the road. While trucking meat for food fare, Sheeran is also living on the periphery of organized crime. He hangs out with food fare drivers in South Philly bars and restaurants such as the Bocce Club and Friendly Lounge, where Italian mobsters like Skinny Razor operate loan shark and bookmaking activities. Sheeran moves money across state lines for Razor. On the side, he also sells portions of the meat and chicken he should be transporting. Low-level side hustles. One night, Sheeran goes to the mafia-owned Villa di Roma for dinner with his Italian buddies. And who should be sitting there but the man who helped him fix his truck that night outside Endicott, New York. It turns out that man was none other than Russell Bufalino, the publicity-shy mobster whose organized crime territory includes upstate New York and Pennsylvania outside Philadelphia, with interests in Florida, Canada, New York City, and northern New Jersey. Organizer of the infamous Appalachian Summit in 1957 that took place in Tioga County, New York. A summit that brought together over 100 of the most powerful mobsters in America. Until Appalachian, most of America, including FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, were in denial that organized crime even existed. 
But afterward, there could be no denying that a certain term heard on government wiretaps was stitched into the very fabric of American society. La Cosa Nostra, or This Thing of Ours. Sharon goes over to Bofalino's table to greet him, and from that moment on, they become good friends. They share prosciutto bread over light conversation, drink red wine late into the night at South Philly's mobster hotspots, and dine out with their wives on Wednesday, because Wednesday is when you take your wife out and not your mistress. As they become closer, Sharon begins to do odd jobs for Buffalino, like acting as his driver on mysterious road trips, such as a drive to Appalachian in 1957, where the infamous Mafia Summit occurs. He also chases unpaid loans or debts by delivering messages for Buffalino. Messages that could land a man in the hospital. And eventually, Sheeran sends men to the morgue, all part of proving his friendship and loyalty to Buffalino. A chance encounter at a truck stop in the middle of the night changed the course of Sheeran's life and unlocked a dormant capacity for violence he gained while fighting on the front lines of World War II. A capacity for violence that Buffalino appreciated wholeheartedly. By 1957, Frank Sheeran is embedded in the organized crime world of South Philly. With the help of his good friend and boss of the Northeastern Pennsylvania Mafia family, Russell Buffalino, Sheeran has risen higher than a made man. Being a made man is a privileged position and a novel one for an Irishman in La Cosa Nostra. Being a made man usually only applies to Italians. It gives you a certain kind of status and commands respect wherever you go. Importantly, it also means you can't be whacked without approval from the big bosses. It makes you untouchable. One night in 1957, Buffalino instructs Sheeran to meet him at the Villa di Roma at 8 o'clock. He tells him there is someone he wants Sheeran to meet. As they take a seat at a table, the phone rings. Buffalino says a few lines to the person on the other end and then hands the receiver to Sheeran. I heard you paint houses, comes the voice through the receiver. This is code for, I hear you kill people. The paint refers to the blood that splatters on floors and walls when you shoot someone. Yeah, replies Sheeran. I do my own carpentry too. This is code for, I also dispose of the bodies. Frank Sheeran has just spoken to Jimmy Hoffa for the first time. As a Teamster union member and truck driver, Sheeran has known of Hoffa for years and developed a respect for him from a distance. He also knows of Hoffa's association with mafia bosses and shady business dealings. Over the phone, before they have even met, Hoffa offers Sheeran a job in Detroit working out of his old Teamster's office, Local 299. It's not that Hoffa has need of Sheeran's truck driving or union organizing skills. It's that Sheeran is skilled at painting houses and doing his own carpentry. He comes recommended by Buffalino and can be trusted. Exactly the type of right-hand man Hoffa needs by his side. After the call ends, Sheeran is on his way to the airport to catch a flight to Detroit. Frank Sheeran now works for Jimmy Hoffa. 
Sheeran and Hoffa appear to be a perfect match. In his deathbed confession, Sheeran claims he was Hoffa's go-to hitman. He takes responsibility for up to 30 hits on Hoffa's instructions. He executes rival union leaders on command and delivers bribes to government officials when Hoffa needs them paid off. He acts as a heavy for Hoffa, delivering verbal messages and even just showing up at places and quietly taking a seat so that those present know they are being watched. In return, Hoffa ensures Sheeran is well compensated. In his role at Teamster's office, Local 299, Sheeran has access to a generous expense account. The secrets they share also make them close friends. When traveling, they often share a room and spend time plotting Hoffa's rise to power. But in 1967, Hoffa's dodgy dealings finally catch up with him. He is sent to Lewisburg Federal Prison for jury tampering, fraud, and pension fraud. Hoffa temporarily hands over the reins of the Teamsters Union and its pension fund to his gopher, Frank Fitzsimmons. Hoffa sees Fitzsimmons as a puppet. He may be acting president of the Teamsters, but Hoffa will be pulling the strings from his prison cell. He is confident that upon release, he will push Fitzsimmons to the side and take back the reins of the Teamsters. It turns out Hoffa underestimated his old gopher, Fitzsimmons. While Hoffa is serving his prison sentence, Fitzsimmons is consolidating his newfound power. Under pressure from union members to get Hoffa out of prison, he hatches a plan to get Hoffa a presidential pardon. He enters into secret talks with President Richard Nixon and promises Nixon Teamsters union backing of his 1972 re-election campaign. That means votes and potentially donations. But there is one condition. The pardon must stipulate that Hoffa cannot run for presidency of the Teamsters until 1980. This gives Fitzsimmons enough time to cement his power by appeasing union members while also blocking Hoffa's comeback. Jump forward to 1971, and Hoffa is released from prison early because of the Nixon pardon. He immediately begins to execute the plans he made in prison for a takeback of the Teamsters. It is only then that he realizes the conditions of his pardon mean if he does make a grab for power, he can be thrown straight back into prison to finish his sentence. Jimmy Hoffa is furious. The thing is, mobsters ingrained in Teamster business actually liked Fitzsimmons. He was more amiable to their interests. Fitzsimmons oversaw the management of the pension with less scrutiny than Hoffa and was happy for his mobster associates to pillage the fund as they saw fit. When Hoffa was at the helm, people got rich, but he wasn't as much of a pushover as Fitzsimmons. Hoffa begins to suspect Fitzsimmons of foul play. He is on the warpath. He plans on running for the Teamster presidency against Fitzsimmons in 1976, regardless of the fact that Nixon's pardon prohibits him from doing so until 1980. It doesn't help that while in prison, Hoffa has also made an arch enemy out of an old friend. His once close friend and mobster associate, Tony Pro, was also serving time for racketeering. In prison, they had a fallout, with Pro allegedly threatening Hoffa. They won't find so much as a fingernail of yours. He screams at Hoffa before an inmate separates them. Now that he is released, Hoffa starts making his own threats, 
all kinds of threats to all kinds of people, in both public and private. Not only do the mobsters prefer Fitzsimmons, but now Hoffa is threatening to expose their less-than-legal business deals, and there is nothing La Cosa Nostra detests more than a rat. Hoffa publicly accuses Fitzsimmons of selling out to mobsters and letting known racketeers into the Teamsters. He receives warnings to back off, and in response, he tells Sheeran, If anything happens to me, I can tell you all hell will break loose. I've got records and lists ready to be mailed out to the media. On October 17, 1974, a private meeting is organized with Bufalino, Hoffa, and Sheeran present. Bufalino tells Hoffa, There are people higher up than me that feel you are demonstrating a failure to show appreciation. Tony Pro is behind a lot of the talk going around mobster families. He hasn't forgotten their fallout in prison and is convinced Hoffa, if re-elected, will block him from access to the Teamster pension fund. The warning doesn't scare Hoffa. He refuses to back down. Following the meeting, Hoffa and Sheeran make their way to the Warwick Hotel where Hoffa is staying. They have an important day ahead of them. October 18, 1974, is Sheeran's night. 3,000 guests come together at the Latin Casino in Philadelphia to celebrate Frank Sheeran Appreciation Night. Organized by Teamsters, the event gets boisterous as guests enjoy the open bar, live music, and choice of lobster or prime rib. Sheeran is given a Teamster of the Year plaque, and the evening is peppered with rousing speeches and jokes about FBI agents sitting in treetops outside. In the crowd, dignitaries, mobsters, Teamster members, and family celebrate Sheeran's contributions to the union movement. Hoffa is the star speaker. He presents Sheeran with a solid gold watch studded with diamonds. Hoffa also tells Sheeran that once he is re-elected as Teamster president, he intends to promote him to international organizer. In Hoffa's hotel room, as they prepare for the appreciation night, Sheeran warns him again. He tells Hoffa of the dangers of running his mouth. I've been told to tell you it is what it is. He means an attempt will be made on Hoffa's life. They wouldn't dare, Hoffa replies. I've got enough to hang everybody. If anything unnatural happens to me, they will all pay. And then in April 1975, a rumor circulates that Jimmy Hoffa is cooperating with the FBI in order to change the condition of his pardon and take back control of the Teamsters. Things have reached a breaking point. By 1975, the beef between Hoffa and Pro has grown, and Hoffa's threats are making life difficult for other mafia bosses. So Anthony Giacalone, a capo and street boss in the Detroit mob family, asks Hoffa to be at the Marcus Red Fox restaurant for peace talks. Hoffa is ready to listen to what Tony Pro has to say, and he is also ready to tell him exactly what he thinks. He is a proud man and doesn't take kindly to threats or anyone getting in the way of his business dealings. The meeting is scheduled for July 30th, 1975. He arrives on time and begins pacing in the parking lot after realizing Giacalone and Pro are late. Hoffa does not like to be kept waiting. 
At 2.15 p.m., he walks around the back of the restaurant to a payphone. First, he calls his wife, Josephine. She tells him no messages have been left for him. At 2.27 p.m., he calls his close friend, Louis Linto. He tells Linto he has been stood up, so Linto invites him to stop by his office on the way home. Hoffa hangs up, and that is the last anyone ever hears from Jimmy Hoffa. He never shows up at Linto's office, and he never makes it home to his wife. In fact, Jimmy Hoffa is never seen or heard from again. The way Sheeran tells it, the hit was to take place under cover of a wedding in Detroit. Hoffa would believe Tony Pro was in the area for the wedding, and therefore able to meet him for peace talks at the Marcus Red Fox restaurant. But the peace talks are a ruse to get Hoffa alone. Sheeran and Bufalino are driving to the wedding with their wives. They stop at Port Clinton, at the southern tip of Lake Erie, and tell their wives they are off to do a thing and will be back in a few hours. This isn't unusual. Mob bosses often tell their wives they have a thing to do, without going into detail. And the wives know that means mob business, and ask no questions. Wives knowing the details might result in them being investigated by the FBI. And the moral code governing mobster life means they are never put in that position. The presence of their wives also acts as an insurance policy. It gives Sheeran and Bufalino an alibi of sorts. The drive from Port Clinton to Detroit, one way, is a little over 100 miles and could take three hours alone. They won't be gone long enough to do that round trip. If their wives are ever asked, they would simply argue their husbands could not have driven to Detroit and back. Because they are not driving to Detroit. Instead, Bufalino takes Sharon to an airport to board a private plane. As Sharon boards the plane, the pilot turns his head away. He knows not to look Sharon in the face, so he can't identify him to any investigators that might be poking around later. As the engines start, Sheeran looks out the window and sees Bufalino sitting in the passenger seat of his black Lincoln, waiting. Bufalino has brought him into the hit and only told Sheeran his role at breakfast. If he let him in on the plan sooner, Sheeran might warn Hoffa out of a sense of duty. Sheeran has no way of doing that, now that he is with Bufalino and the hit is already underway. Not long after, Sheeran's plane lands at a Pontiac airfield, and in the parking lot is a Ford with a key waiting on the floor mat. Sheeran drives to an address given to him by Bufalino. The house has brown shingles and a high fence in the back with a detached garage. It's private, not visible to prying neighbors or people passing by. Sheeran goes into the house to check it out, and as he steps inside, he notices a piece of linoleum has been laid out in the vestibule. In the kitchen, there are three other mobsters, including Sally Bugs, known as the Torturer. They do not speak to Sheeran, and they all wait for Chucky O'Brien, Hoffa's foster son. He is there as bait to make Hoffa feel safe, but hasn't been told about the hit. O'Brien thinks he is there to drive Sheeran and Sally Bugs to the Marcus Red Fox restaurant to pick up his father. The whole thing is engineered so that Hoffa is not spooked, 
Hoffa has been told Sheeran will meet him at the Marcus Red Fox restaurant at 2 o'clock to be ready for the 2.30 meeting with Tony Pro and Anthony Giacalone. He is expecting to meet them in a public restaurant with a public parking lot. Hoffa is a cautious man, and if he is spooked by the smallest thing, he might refuse to get in the car. O'Brien and Sheeran's presence is designed to prevent that from happening so that Hoffa can be lured away from the restaurant and back to the house. Sheeran, O'Brien, and Sally Bugs get in the car and drive to the Marcus Red Fox. Hoffa spots them in the parking lot and approaches. He is angry for being kept waiting and begins cursing at his foster son. When he is told to get in the car, he asks why the plans have changed, why Sally Bugs is there, why Sheeran is late. Where are Pro and Gia Colone? A stream of questions that makes everyone nervous. O'Brien apologizes, explaining it's his fault. He's late on account of a fish his wife asked him to fillet. Sheeran explains that Bufalino decided he wanted to be at the meeting too and is waiting for them elsewhere. So plans changed. That's an important part of the setup because Bufalino is the head of a crime family and would never place himself at the scene of a hit. If Hoffa has any doubts, it doesn't stop him from getting in the car. They drive off quickly before he changes his mind. When they get to the house, Hoffa jumps out and heads straight to the door. Sheeran catches up to him, keeping the distance between them short. Hoffa steps in and immediately realizes something is not right. The house looks empty. He can't see the two mobsters in the kitchen, the cleanup guys. But he turns quickly to head back out, instinct finally kicking in. But Hoffa hasn't realized that his old friend, Frank Sheeran, is also in on the hit. As he steps around Sheeran and reaches for the door, Sheeran raises the gun and Jimmy Hoffa got shot twice at decent range. Not too close or the paint splatters back at you. In the back of the head behind his right ear. Sheeran drops the gun on the linoleum beside Hoffa's body. He leaves the house and drives back to Pontiac Airport in the Ford where the pilot is still waiting. When he lands back at the airfield in Port Clinton, Bufalino is there in the black Lincoln. He hasn't moved. I hope you had a pleasant flight, my Irish friend he says. They drive back to their waiting wives and then continue towards the wedding. Sheeran is later told that after he left the house, the two mobsters waiting in the kitchen cleaned it up, wrapped Hoffa's body and the gun in the linoleum laid out earlier, took it to the back garden, and put it in the trunk of a Buick. Then they drove it to a crematorium that has never been identified and cremated him. Not everyone believes Frank Sheeran's deathbed confession is genuine. The questions about what happened to Jimmy Hoffa on that day have gone unanswered for so long, his disappearance has become part of his legend. Over the years, the relentless guesswork and attention to the case have left many directly impacted, exhausted, and no closer to an understanding of what happened that day. Jack Goldsmith, Chucky e. O'Brien's stepson, is one of those people. 
the Chucky O'Brien who reportedly drove Hoffa to that fateful meeting. He was 12 years old when Hoffa disappeared and his life was thrown into chaos afterwards. Goldsmith has spent over 40 years trying to clear his father's name. He contends his father wasn't even there that day and argues that over the years, Sheeran changed his story so many times, his deathbed confession is unreliable. For Goldsmith, Sheeran was desperate to establish his own legend as a mobster hitman. The FBI investigation into Hoffa's disappearance concluded that his murder was the result of a mob conspiracy and included a list of potential suspects. Frank Sheeran was on that list. Most agree Tony Pro orchestrated the killing of Jimmy Hoffa on the 30th of July, 1975, because of a feud that started when they were in prison together. Tony arranged the disposal of the body so that it would never be found, which in the world of mafia hit jobs is unusual and a deliberate act of cruelty towards Hoffa's family. But there is no consensus on who pulled the trigger. Sheeran offered the final piece in a puzzle that has baffled the world for decades. In 2004, when his confession was published, he was no longer around. He died at his Westchester nursing home in December 2003, taking with him answers to questions that remain unanswered. Questions from the FBI, Hoffa's family, Chucky O'Brien's family. And as a result, the legend of Jimmy Hoffa endures with the world still wanting to know who killed Jimmy Hoffa. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We travel back to 1865, the year that stage actor John Wilkes Booth shot and killed President Abraham Lincoln. According to official records, Booth was apprehended and killed on April 26, 1865. But 42 years later in 1907, a lawyer from Texas named Finnis L. Bates published a book containing an explosive deathbed confession from a man claiming to be John Wilkes Booth. Did Booth actually escape justice for decades and live under a pseudonym undetected by authorities? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Saida Ruas. Edited by Rob Plummer. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound design by Matias Torres-Solé. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Mix master by Kean Ryan Morgan.